This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And uh, we're two women of the movies. I like it. Yeah? That okay. could be the next tattoo, Femme de la Cinema. Ooh, what? Yeah, bitch. Why did you say that like many years ago when we started our podcast? Off the dome. Sometimes you got to you got to get a head start. You got to get a running a running start up to genius. Okay, listen. <laughs> we, I think that we definitely need to make that a tattoo. We need somebody yes. to come and make a really beautiful design, like a crest. Why don't we do? A, I saw what you did. Pod crest. Yes. Femme de, femme de la cinema. Yes. It, or femme then, du cinema, whatever it is. Right. <laughs> but yeah, and then we'll whatever the actual French. Uh, syntax or... We'll confirm. We'll confirm. Yeah, we'll confirm with a French person. But then we will then get the tattoos ourselves. Yes. And and then force everybody else to get them too. Hmm. Listen, we're hanging out soon and we're going to be hanging out in another country and that is the best way to commemorate yeah. such an occasion. Yeah, I don't have a tattoo. As everybody knows, I, I don't have any tattoos. This is definitely something I could get as a first. I feel like. A first, but not the only, because you got to get Sophie protecting oh. that biscuit. Yeah, look, I got a French dog and a French-themed crest, podcast crest. I mean, this is perfect. Two guns, yes. two tats. Bare, bare mins, we can do a t-shirt if you don't want to get a tattoo, but <laughs> get a tattoo. Look at the world. Get a fucking tattoo. <laughs> what are we waiting for anymore? I know. Everything's gone straight to hell. Get a fucking tattoo. Oh, absolutely correct. Okay, so I want to throw a potential new idea out at you. Ooh. So our producer, Casey O'Brien. Casey O'Brien. Casey O'Brien. If you heard our last. <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> He's quitting right now. He's writing his resignation letter. <laughs> he has this podcast with his co-host, Patrick, who um, they're both like really fun, interesting film dudes, but it's called Fart House. We've talked about it before. So they have a section of their podcast where they kind of talk about the movies that they've seen over the past month, That mm -hmm. I guess, between episodes. And it, it's they log in a letterbox, which, by the way, if you didn't know, we have a letterbox account. Mm -hmm. We post the titles that we talk about on the podcast. So if you are a letterbox user, you can actually find us. I think it's I Saw What You Did Pod. But that's basically a list of everything that we've ever talked about. Yes. But I use it, you know, personally to log films. And if you're looking for something like that in your life, like if you're like, hey, I'm listening to this podcast with these two cool ladies and I've been watching a lot of movies. How do I remember what I watched? Letterbox is, for me, is a good option they have an yeah. app. I mean, it's kind of like all 
um, at your side if you need to log films. So they have a section where they talk about it. And then I was like, okay, well, let me go through my letter box. And I realized something. So last month, I've watched 29 movies. Damn. It tracks. It tracks. (laughs) Right. But here's the thing. It's like a movie a night, kind of. Like, I'm like, how did I have the time to watch all those movies? Because, as you know, you and I watch two movies a week. So, you know, roughly, you know, eight movies a month. But then if there's sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I... I'm like, oh, I want to watch this other movie that's related to the movie mm-hmm. or something. And then I ended up going down a rabbit hole. So sometimes it could be, I would say, in between 10 and 12 movies a month, maybe. Max for the pod. But 29 right. movies in one month is a lot for me. Like, yeah. well, and then I started looking back on my list and I was like, maybe um, I could mention a couple of these movies that I watched. So I will say this. I think the reason for the uptick in movie watching was because I was on a jury for a film festival. So I don't know if you've ever been on a jury. Danielle, you should actually be on a jury for a film festival. Really? I'd love it. Absolutely, 100%. I've done them a few times. It's super fun. You're just the type of person that they need to be on juries. So (gasps) Hollywood, whomever, worldwide, if you have a film festival and you need somebody for a jury, Danielle Henderson is your woman. I'm telling I'm you. available, man. I'm available. Yes. I got I got the time. Yes. And it's just fun because then they usually give you a badge to the film festival and you can watch other stuff. And uh and then you get to watch stuff usually that hasn't come out yet. So it's kind of cool. Nice. So yeah, I was on a I was on a film festival jury, the Atlanta Film Festival. And so I, I was part of the narrative features category. So I got to watch all these cool new movies that are being made by like cool people, cool young people. Oh it was really neat. So I ended up I watching a lot. I love this. I yeah, yeah. love this. I was, I, I don't know if I, I, I probably told you this. I don't think I've told our listeners this, but I was, um, I was on a jury, the only jury thing I've ever done, like the only jury I've ever been part of besides a jury duty, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I actually love because I'm like, yeah, I'll fucking show up and do my civic duty. Don't talk to me for seven years. Wait, what, what was your case, by the way? I was on jury duty once too. I, I got, I always get called for jury duty, but I never get on the ah. actual jury. I've never been on an actual jury yet. But the last one that I was called for was like this intense domestic violence situation. And I was oh, wow. like, you know how they ask you all the questions like, have you ever experienced this, this, this? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. My childhood was a mess. So no, I can't be on this jury, I guess, but I'd wow. love to. And they're yeah. like, no, too biased. But I was a um, a jurist for the Pulitzer Prize for a couple of years. Oh, wow. I worked in New York. Wow. The Pulitzer Prize for Journalism. That's so impressive, actually. <laughs> it was fun. It was really, and I don't even, I'm like, how'd you get my number? Like, I don't know why I'm, I'm here, but it was, it was one of the years was when um, Hilton Owls won. Wow. It was cool. And you get to read like all this great journal. So I love the idea of a, of a being on a film jury because yeah. that to me is like the fun part where you're like, ooh, I get to watch or read everything. And you're a completist. So I know how that hits you right in the heart bones. <laughs> well, and on, honestly, to to both points, like either if you're on a film book jury, if you're on a criminal trial or a civil trial, they need people like you. They need people who are rational thinkers, who are, mm-hmm. you know, can basically listen to things and organize their thoughts. I mean, that's I mean, because that's the shocking part about being on jury duty is that you're yeah. like oh, shit, like, I'm around people who, like, are very emotional and don't know how to make decisions properly. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, 
Because I was on a jury. I was on a murder trial probably like 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. And it was so fucking stressful because of that. Like, it's the 12 angry men scenario where you're like, I'm cool, calm, and collected, and then somebody else is like a freak. Exactly. (laughs) Also, I feel like if you're on a murder trial, you should never have to do jury duty again because that is stressful. Uh, yeah, I, for some reason, I've never been called back, and I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's because I've moved a few times since then. But yeah, it was um, it was it was quite an experience, honestly. Like I just really end to end, it was fascinating, but yeah. it was stressing me the fuck out. And um, and it's like that on every jury. Like you're like, I'm cool, comic collected. I'm reading all these articles, and then you'll have one person who's like, I don't get this, and you're like, oh fuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like. <laughs> To the, to the point of the Atlanta Film Festival jury, I was on there with this other person, and he was lovely. His name is Clint, and I think he works Aww. for the New Orleans Film Festival, but he was such a lovely individual. Aww. He and I got along very well. There was no fighting. He was not... He was... Uh, Clint was not, like, the Lee J. Cobb of the 12 Angry Men jury. <laughs> he was he was very sweet. And so, yeah, I will say, I being on the jury is fun. Danielle... Put you gotta go. Sign me up. So I watched I don't know probably like five or six different movies, but then after it was over, I was like, "What am I watching?" And then I watched the first three Jackass movies Ah! again, (laughs) just just to reset a palate cleanser. Yes, after you've watched like cinema, I was like, "What's on TV?" Oh, the first three Jackass movies. So I watched all three Jackass movies again. Classics. Do you have a favorite of the three? Oh God, I don't know actually. Because I've seen you don't them have all. to. I've seen yeah, you don't all. have to have a favorite. I actually love the one. I think it's number two where they do like the Busby Berkeley yeah. thing at the end <laughs> with like <laughs> the, like diving into the pool and all that stuff. I think it's two, but it's so good. Like that, I was like fucking impressed by those dudes. I was like, <laughs> they really nailed it. The musical. Oh, let's see what else I watched. So I watched. Manhunter from 1986. Okay, this we got to talk about because I don't know what kind of symbiosis was happening. But last weekend, I was on one and I watched every single Hannibal Lecter film that was available. So I watched Manhunter, Red Dragon, and I watched them in order. So it's like Manhunter, Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs. You know, I just watched them all. Yes, like, that's what I did on a Saturday last weekend. And you know why? Because I don't have kids or a partner. I could do whatever the fuck I want. I could spend all day watching Hannibal Lecter if I want. And it yes. felt great. Mm, 100% with you. Um, we, I, I was with my friend Eddie. We wa- rewatched Silence of the Lambs. And then, yes. which is incredible. We're going to probably talk Ugh. about it today, obviously. But then I was like, somebody in the room that uh, at Eddie's house was like, I've never seen Manhunter. And we were like, we gotta watch Manhunter. It was filmed in Atlanta, by the way, which is really fun. Oh, but gotta I was, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, now I'm like, oh shit, I wanna watch Red Dragon. And then I was like, should I watch like the TV stuff? Like, yeah. Now I wanna go into the TV stuff. That's what I'm doing now. I watched all the movies and then I went back and I'm watching Hannibal, the TV series again. Yeah. So Hannibal is the, t- this is Mads Michelson. Is that? Mads Mikkelsen, my favorite dude. Oh my God, so, I love him. <laughs> so is he <laughs> Hannibal? He is in the TV show. Yeah, but does he play Hannibal Lecter? Is yeah. That, and it's like young, like teen Hannibal <laughs> or something. I don't know. I love teen and like young <laughs> versions of characters. I mean, he is a middle-aged man, so no. Okay. But- <laughs> 
<laughs> but he is playing a younger version of Hannibal that we've seen than we've seen in Silence of the Lambs. So he's okay. playing like like Will Graham is also in it, and he's okay. also you know young, but it's set in present day. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. But he's like a middle age. It's like before he gets caught as being Hannibal the Cannibal. Oh, I see. So it's when he's a doctor. Oh, ooh, I gotta get on that shit. I also you gotta too, get on it. He's one of those guys. He's like a Pedro Pascal. Everybody is horny for him. Now I gotta you see gotta what all the be. fuss is about. So, oh, uh, have you seen another round? No, I've not. I don't oh! even know this guy. I, I don't know this Whoa! guy. Okay, so he's your Adrian Grenier, where you just have not kept up with his career <laughs> at all. I missed him completely. You missed his career. <laughs> yeah. Again, if you haven't listened to our last bonus episode, please go do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he is fantastic. Oh, Another Round is such a good movie. It came out recently, like last couple of years. And also The Hunt, if you haven't watched The Hunt. Okay. For sure. I'm putting and it on my watch list right now. Put it on, on that letterbox list. Yeah. And also, not for nothing, it's a pretty good movie, but in the movie Polar, P-O-L-A-R, okay. he fucks. He fucks, like, a lot in Polar. Wow. And he plays, like, a ser- like a hitman. Okay. He's okay. a killer who fucks. A ki- we love that here. On we love a killer on. who fucks. We love a killer who fucks. You gotta balance Spe- it. <laughs> speaking, speaking slightly of a killer who fucks, another movie that I saw last month is this movie called Thriller, A Cruel Picture. Ooh, now, I've heard of that. Yes, this is like a 70s rape revenge film. Really? It's like a classic in that micro-genre. So there's like an entire micro-genre of films that are rape revenge movies. You know, obviously I think Kill Bill is part of that tradition, but then like Miss 45 and, you know, so, but this one is kind of the one of the originals that came out, right? Wow. And so when I was in high school, I saw basically the U.S. version of it, which was called They Call Her One Eye. Oh, damn. Yes. And um, it's basically, I think it's a, is it a Swedish film? But the the cover is like a, a woman with an eye patch and she's like shooting up dudes. It's incredible. It's an incredible film. I'm already right? in. I'm already in. So... I got the new Blu-ray that has the kind of original cut that nice. wasn't the one I saw, and that's what that is called Thriller. Okay. <sighs> now that movie had included these inserts of pure pornography, basically. <laughs> like there was <laughs> there was cuts, like sh- shots of penetrative sex, like what? Parts Swedes, like bits, man. close Swedes. up parts, and I was shocked because I've never seen that in the original. <laughs> and I, I mean, it was really hard to watch because I was like, "Oh wait a minute!" Now I'm seeing someone's anus, like an what? anus <laughs> is on my fifty inch television. Can we call this episode fifty inch anus? <laughs> I was. <laughs> Oh my god, that's yeah, so, wild! Yeah, so it was crazy because it was that it's that kind of thing where like here's a movie from my childhood that I'm finally seeing completely uncut, and it is wild. I was like, oh, I uh, I don't know what to do. I have never seen the butthole version of this film. Um, well, that also makes me think of like. Like, in terms of, like, Last Tango in Paris and, like, all these films where it's, like, what was that set like? And what was it like for those actors? 
Like, what yeah. is happening here? Where they yeah. even thought that'd be cool. Well, I had to. I had to read about it because I was like, certainly because the woman who stars in the film, Christina Lindbergh, she was kind of a famous sex exploitation actress. But she, I don't think she was a, she wasn't a porn star, right? right? She didn't do hardcore, I think. And so I was like, that's certainly not her. And then I read that they had actually had two, you know, poor, you know, porn actors do the scenes. And that's what's showing on the screen. And I was like, wow, this is wild. Because that movie is already pretty intense. It's very bleak, as you can imagine. Yeah. And then, of course, the end of it is so satisfying because she's walking around like a badass. She's, like, learning Green Berets training because she's so, like, fed up with all of these assholes that forced her into sex work. And then, you know, basically at the end of the day, she's, like, a fucking ninja badass. It's amazing. And there's a lot of great, like, slow motion. It's kind of known for that. These, like, slow motion, like, pa, pa, pa. Like, it's kind of glorious. But, um... Anyway, so I watched that, and then um, what else? I mean, there's just random stuff I watched. I mean, I watched the third Exorcist movie, which is so weird and interesting. <laughs> Have you ever seen the third Exorcist movie with George C. Scott? I haven't even seen the second one. No, that is a choice, man. That's a choice. The second Exorcist is, I, and I and I say this knowing that I love terrible things it's terrible like <laughs> not even george C. scott could save it <laughs> yeah no no no, no. Look, i'm talking about the second oh one. the second so the, sex, gotcha. the second exorcist is terrible now the third one is kind of amazing in its own weird way it it feels like i said this in my letterbox review it feels like you're watching a syndicated television show on like the ion network what? Or something. It's really <laughs> weird. It's like Criminal Minds with crosses. Yes. So the George C. Scott character is the detective from the first Exorcist movie. And so the entire thing is about him. Oh. Except it's not... Um, was it Lee J. Cobb that played him in the first uh, Exorcist? But now George C. Scott is that detective. Oh. And it's... and. I mean, it's very interesting and weird. Well, who it's- thought that of all the characters in The Exorcist, the detective was the most important one to focus on for the I third know. movie? Of all the characters. People are being thrown around rooms and fucking possessed. Yeah. And they're like, you know what we need to do? We need to dig deeper into this fucking detective. Yeah, and that's what's so weird about it. It's like you're watching, like, Father Dowling Mysteries with... <laughs> Tom fucking Bosley. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you're watching something like that, except Brad Dorif is like a fucking demon or something. <laughs> like, oh, what no. the fuck? I would be very curious if anybody returns to Exorcist 3, email us at isachdidpot at gmail.com and tell me what you think of that movie. <laughs> it's so weird. Oh, shit. And also, but, throw um, in a line or two about Father Dowling Mysteries. <laughs> I don't think enough yeah. people have have recognized that a show where there there was once a show with a crime fighting priest and his sidekick nun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god. So, and then I watched this movie called Last Summer, which I might have brought up during the David and Lisa episode that we just did, but um, it is it's very hard to find, so I had to go down to my local video store in Atlanta, Videodrome, um, and rent it, and it was. I mean, I hadn't seen it in probably 
I don't know, 20 years. And I was like, wow, this movie is fucked up. <laughs> like, this is a fucked up movie. Yeah, it's um like late 60s, kind of like counterculture adjacent, but it stars Barbara Hershey, very young Barbara Hershey, like beautiful J. Crew model Barbara Hershey. And it's kind of a mix. I would say it's kind of like, um, God, it kind of reminds me of like an Itu Mama Tambien meets The Dreamers. I don't know if you ever saw The Dreamers. Oh, yeah. yeah, with like Michael Pitt and um, that friend. Is that Bertolucci Green. movie? Yeah. Yeah. So it it's that, that kind of thing where it's like a girl and two guys having a summer, having a fucking summer, and they're like these kind of disaffected rich kids. Their parents kind of leave them to their own devices, and they just are fucked up. Like, they're fucked up. Like, they're, you know, kind of tormenting this, like, other girl that's now on the trip, and they're just kind of, like, weird almost having sex with each other, but not really type of thing. It's very, like, um, it's a bummer of a film. Let's just say that. It's it's a fucking bummer. Um, oh, <laughs> but fascinating. And then, I don't know, that's it. I mean, I pretty much watched, like, I watched Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. I don't know if you saw that one. I haven't yet. Aww. Yeah. And then um, I saw Bo is Afraid. I don't know. Now, that I one know. I wanted to watch, and it was only in my local theater for a week, and then it was gone. Yeah. So I'm going to have to go to, like, New Jersey to watch it or something. <laughs> they were like, this movie is too long and too weird for this town. None of these farmers want to watch fucking Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix being born. <laughs> I want to say this, though. I'm not going to obviously give it away. The I think I understood that movie more because you made me watch Hereditary. <gasps> Re- go on, really? Yeah. Because, I mean, listen, th- this, is, this is a stupid thing for me to say, but part of the benefit in watching a director, writer's, like, you know, whole filmography, or at least watching multiple movies from the same director, is that you're like, oh, these are, th- there are tons of through lines between all of these films. I'm like, mm-hmm. if I hadn't seen Hereditary, if I wasn't forced to watch that traumatic film, then I wouldn't have understood a lot of so- sort of the the themes of Bo is Afraid in terms right. of the mother so have, yeah, have you watched Midsummer? No, I have not actually. Oh, fucking shit! Yeah, Ari Aster has beef with moms. Oh, okay, <laughs> he's got beef with moms for sure. Yeah, um, I that's very clear in the two movies that I've seen <laughs> of his. So I, I am gonna watch Midsummer. That's gonna be that's on my list too to watch. Um, but uh, yeah, I there was a lot of things. There was also just sort of like scenes that reminded me of Hereditary. Like, like I said, I I don't want to give it away, but, um, but yeah. And then I was like in the movie thinking, wow, I'm really glad that Danielle made me watch Hereditary. (laughs) I, I probably overall enjoyed it more having, having watched that. That is a high compliment because as we know, Hereditary traumatized you for life. And, (laughs) you know, I feel, I feel a little guilt about it. So I'm glad that it had a payoff beyond the trauma. Because there's, I also saw in the trailer, I watched the trailer for it, and um, I saw him running through the woods at one point, and I was like, again, Ari Aster in the woods? Ari oh, Aster yeah. in the woods and moms, he just can't. Yeah, there is, so, 
I, I don't think I'm giving anything away, but the film is sort of structured kind of in like a four act type of thing. Mm-hmm. And like, there's an entire act. I think it's the third one that's in the woods pretty right. much. So yeah, you're absolutely right about that. But it is very controversial. I think a lot like the people that I went with, fucking hated it like to the point where they were walking out of the movie theater and being like I wasted my time my life and then like somebody that we didn't know across the parking deck was like I know did you just see that movie because I've I don't know if I felt that way about it but it is it is challenging to say the least (laughs) let's just say that and it's also long right it's like almost three hours long Oh, yeah. And look, I could go on a whole fucking tangent about these three-hour movies. Like, I'm just like, come on, y'all. Like, give me a tight 95. <laughs> yeah, like, it's... It, and it was kind of like, the movie is kind of paced... I think now that I've seen everything everywhere all at once, you know? Right. I... I was like, oh, this kind of feels that way pacing-wise. Like, it's very kind of, like, chaotic and it's a frenzy. It's very sensory. Right. But over the course of three hours, I was like, can I sustain... Like, I just remember, like, dissociating at one point and being, like, looking at my watch going, oh, there's, like, another hour left. So, cool. Glad there's a three-hour movie (laughs) <laughs> that I watched. Like, I'm glad um, in, the, in the midst of all this horror and trauma, I'm still going to be here for another hour. This is great. I know. I know. And I hate to think that, but it is truly what I thought. Honest to God. True. Well, I so. am going to find it. I'm even looking right now, like, where can I see it? Where is it? Um, yeah. I want to see it because I love, I just love Ari Aster. But you know what I, I also want to see? What? And I only want to see it because I saw it in the trailer for John Jonathan Wick 4. Yes, Donnie Book Four is that movie um, Sisu? I think it's called. Yes, yes. I'm yes. seeing that shit. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of good trailers attached to uh, Bo's Afraid that I. Nice. I think that was one of them. But, um, dude, I can't believe I saw 29 movies. I there's a lot I didn't mention, obviously. But, um, yeah. I'm I mean, also it, I was shocked. kind of like, <laughs> I'm shocked and awed by it. But also, listen, if you. I don't know if you have a letterbox. You probably don't. You probably don't want another app. But if you sign up for it, or I would love to see what you're watching too. Because that's what my favorite part about letterbox is see yeah. what other people are watching. Like, not going to lie, I'm looking at Casey's, uh, our producer's letterbox. I'm like, oh, what's he, he man, he watched that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Now I got to watch it. So I think that I, I keep meaning to sign up for it. And, I, and yeah. like you said, I always think like, ah, I don't need another app. But I do like the idea of logging films and seeing what other people are watching. So I kind of get an idea of what to, to do. So I'm going to sign up for that. It's on my list right now. I'm going to sign up for it the minute we stop recording. Yeah. And and friend our podcast. You have to at least friend our podcast. And me. I'll think about it. Okay. okay. <laughs> but I, I will because then I can say, like, I can send you a text and be like, yo, you're on movie 35 this month. Are you all right? <laughs> that's on. the best part is when you're like looking at your friends and you're like oh somebody's watching like I don't know <laughs> like, like something oh. like solo and you're like ah, ah. whoa what happened there what kind of night are you having or morning why did that happen <laughs> well thanks for indulging me in this I just wanted to um, 
bring I'm up psyched. some movies. And we should do it more often. I think it's cool to talk yeah. about movies we're watching now that are not uh, that we're not going to showcase on the pod. And also, you know, we don't cover a lot of new films in that's right in the or really any new films in the pod. So it's a nice way to kind of let you know what we're watching on the actual screens. Definitely. Well, you want to talk about some more movies? You know I fucking do. Because <laughs> this week's theme, it kind of, it's one of those themes that just jumped out of my brain. Oh my God. And the minute it did, I was like, ooh, what's wrong with me? But also, yes, yes, this makes sense. Well, let me just tell you right now. Every time, I mean, like, we know at this point that you pretty much come up with all of the names for all the themes. We come up with the concepts together, but Danielle puts, like, the finishing touch on the name. <laughs> because I'm stupid and I can't think of things. That's not true. <laughs> I appreciate it, but it's true. I often say, this is the best thing you've ever said. This is the best <laughs> thing you've ever come up with. This week might actually have kicked all of the prior times, all the prior accolades out the door. This is pretty much the best thing you've ever said. I thank me. you. Thank <laughs> you. Not only do I agree, I think it's the best thing I've ever done with my entire life. <laughs> if I look across the spectrum of accomplishments, this is at the top for me. Well, now you got to tell everybody, what is this week's theme? I can't wait to tell you because I guarantee nobody guessed it. Um, <laughs> this week's theme is remember when Lenny Kravitz dick popped out. <laughs> so I actually forgot. And then I was like Googling it and I was like, wow, I'm, I'm in a section of the internet that I need to scrub from my history. And this, this is meant in no way to shame Mr. Kravitz. It was something that I think a lot of people forget. And that's why I chose it for this particular theme, because we are exploring in film this notion of forgotten classics or movies that are no longer, like, discussed widely, as either as widely as they used to be or as widely as they should. And I think yes. we should never forget that Lenny Kravitz was once at a giving doing a concert, and he <laughs> squatted down, and his pants split at the crotch, and his dick flopped out. <laughs> That, that Truly like, a forgotten <laughs> classic for me. That is the height <laughs> of pop culture to me. I I feel like there, if there isn't a Wikipedia section of these like stage mishaps, you could definitely put the dick pop out. Wasn't there the the time that like Fergie peed she herself peed her on stage? Yep. Yes. Who could forget the infamous Millie Vanilli? Girl, you know it's girl, you know it's girl. I mean that mm -hmm. is. Another stage mishap. So anyway, this is the Lenny Kravitz thing is in a long line of 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 those type of concert oopsies. But it is remember when Ashley Simpson was on SNL and she was lip syncing and got caught because her oh, track yes, she did that little jig because <laughs> she, she she did the jig. We should not forget these moments because I feel like it helps us to not put everyone on a fucking pedestal. Like, they yes. are human and shit happens. Like, your pants probably split at work at some point. And oh, I guarantee 100%. all your coworkers remember, even if you don't work with them anymore. Everyone is telling us, oh, my God, I worked with this one person. And they bent over in the fucking storage closet and their fucking dick popped out. Yeah. For me, it's the inner thigh after the thigh rub has rubbed my uh, jeans to the point of threads. 
And then I bend, I bend over, I squat, and all of a sudden, my entire thigh is showing. <laughs> so I've been there. Lenny, no shame. No, no shame. Literally, no, sh- no shame at all. It was just, to me, the, a pivotal moment in pop culture that people forget. And I cannot believe people forget it because it's, like, foundational. Yeah. And I think everybody, to no surprise, was like, he's not wearing underwear. Duh. Oh, yeah. He's wearing leather pants and no underwear. Free ball in it. Yeah. A classic. And so, yeah, to to the point of the actual theme of the movies, you know, we decided to pick two films that we thought, yeah, were sort of like movies that maybe that are older, that are actually made, both of our movies this week are actually made by two pretty famous, beloved directors. Mm -hmm. And I feel like these movies are actually like kind of, tucked into their filmography, there's movies that they've made that are way more popular and seem to get way more of the attention. But for some reason, these two are just kind of quietly in there. But they're great. And and I actually had another movie previously, just a little inside baseball for you folks, that was un... At one point, it was available to watch on Criterion Channel, and then it went away. And it is nowhere to be found on Which the internet. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah, not me. even on a YouTube, you know, Spanish subtitles 10 part version. It was hard to find. So, and because Daniel and I want you all to have the ability to watch these movies, we decided to pick something else. And, yeah. uh, but just, just as good, just a, a, a selection I had wanted to, to talk about anyway. But it was that thing of like, it goes back to that conversation that we've had so many times about how streaming is not the answer for everything. And they can, as quickly as it shows up, it it can go away randomly. So, Absolutely. And it's lovely that you have Videodrome, and I wish we had more of those. Yeah. Um, But we don't. We don't have enough stores that have physical media where we can all just kind of pop down and, and rent something that isn't streaming. But yeah, I think... At the time of this recording, at least, uh, my union is in the middle of a writer's strike, and it's for shit exactly like this. Like, streaming has fucked us all in many ways, um, writers specifically, but I think it fucks the viewers, too, because we're at the whim of people who can decide for any number of reasons that are completely arbitrary to not show something anymore. Yeah. So... Yeah, things out of circulation all the time. And that, and that's what makes things forgotten classics, by the way, is the mm-hmm. idea that people don't have access to things and can't watch them. Completely. And uh, we don't believe that on this podcast. We want movies to be everywhere, everything everywhere all at once, right? Anyway. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so, a, that's the name of our production company, our, our distribution company that we're going to start. <laughs> Yes, we're all we're going to bring all movies. It doesn't matter if they're pirated or not. We're just going <laughs> to put them out there for everybody. But I'm excited. I cannot wait to talk about your film. I think you're going first, right? I am going first. And I also want to mention that if you do like our theme, our friend Ralph at Pink, Pink Bike Ralph, um, who made us those g- Millie and I these gorgeous T-shirts um, when we did our yeah. RoboCop episode, also has um, remember remember when Lenny Kravitz dick popped out on some koozies and and stickers and like a bunch of stuff in his shop. So please go check that out. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll, we should post them on Instagram or something. But they are oh yeah hilarious. for sure for sure. Hilarious. It's fun to drink out of a koozie that has 
<laughs> that has this phrase on it, by the way. Because <laughs> people forget, and then they read your fucking hand, and they're like, wait, what? And then you get the beauty and glory of showing them the clip, and they're like, oh, my God, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so well, we're we're popping out some dicks this week. I cannot wait. Popping on some dicks. One of the, again, I'm like so in the strike right now, and the head of the Teamsters was giving an interview about how, like, you know, Teamsters support the the WGA and the the union. Yeah. And she's like, look, this is in my blood. I come from Teamsters, and I'm out here stepping on dicks all day long. It is just the greatest fucking quote, and she is so fucking cool. She has a Jimmy Hoffa tattoo. <laughs> like what? His, yeah, like, Amazing! Like, his face. I'll send you the link after. But she, like, she has his face tattooed, and she's like, this is in my fucking blood. And she's the head of the goddamn Teamsters, and she's like, we don't cross picket lines. I will be out here stepping on dicks all day long, and I just love that quote. That's, that is the definition of a bad bitch. Everybody needs to cross out what they used to have mm-hmm. and that put this woman there. But yeah, my, so my movie for our theme, Remember When Lenny Kravitz's Dick Popped Out, <laughs> was released in 1979. Uh, the screenplay is by Jerzy Kaczynski, who also wrote the book that the movie is based on. Uh, it's directed by Hal Ashby, and my movie is Being There. As long as the roots are not severed, all is well, and all will be well in the garden. Oh my gosh. Now, have you seen this movie recently? Oh, no. It's been a very long time. Yep. I I own it and I watch it every once in a while. Like every couple of years, I'll watch it. Um, And I just fucking love it. And I've always loved it since I was a kid. And I think there's one particular part that I'm going to talk about that really opened my eyes to what movies could do when I was a kid because I saw this movie. I love it. So a quick one sentence synopsis is after his employer dies, a gardener who has been sheltered his entire life and learned everything he knows about human behavior from television goes out into the world and has the adventure of a lifetime. Perfect. One sentence. So as you know, we've already talked about Hal Ashby in our Harold and Maude episode. Please read about him if you haven't already. He has had a wild life both as a person and a director. Died way too soon and gave us just an absolute treasure trove of films um, that he left behind. Um, This being one of them. And the, the movie has a really great cast. So the star of the film is Peter Sellers, who plays the main character, Chance. And most of you will know Peter Sellers as the Pink Panther. Mm-hmm. Again, as of the time of this recording, he is dead, but I have not read or seen of anything pop- problematic in his past. So he's just the Pink Panther and kind of branched down to other shit. Um, did you watch ever... I'm sorry to break in. No, no, uh, go ahead. Did you, did you see the... Wasn't there like a biopic about him starring Jeffrey Rush? Was it Jeffrey Rush? There was. He played... Peter Sellers. I yeah. didn't see it. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing that right when it came out. And, you know, kind of, it's in that way where it's like, oh, he is the Pink Panther. He's, you know, 100 people in Doctor Strange Love, and he was in all these, like, crazy, funny movies. And then it was like, you know, just the standard biopic deflation of like, oh, he was a human being with, like, human being problems. And you're like, right. oh, Okay. <laughs> Like, wow. <laughs> he's not a freewheeling fun ba- bad guy all the time. Like he's, he's not a freewheeling a real freak. person. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I mean, not to say that he that's I, like I said, as of this recording, we don't know. 
I don't yeah. know. But I was just saying, I think just generally, I was like, oh, there's a biopic that's like, he was sad sometimes, actually. Yeah, he has trauma just like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that's cool about him, him being in this film is that the reason that he's in the film is that he actually read the book um, like in 1972. And again, the film was released in 1979. And he brought it to Hal Ashby and they kind of made a pact um, that they wouldn't make the movie without each other. So oh, wow. it took a long time for them to get it made. But they kind of decided like, you know, Hal Ashby's like, yeah, you're the only one who can star. And Peter Sellers is like, and you're the only one who can direct. So they waited until they could do it. Mm-hmm. Um and Peter Sellers has said, I watched, a, there's a bunch of interviews and clips and things on on YouTube, and he said that that Chance is the most difficult role he's ever played because he wanted him to be credible. So Chance yeah. as a character is kind of like intellectually stunted, but, you know, the way that Sellers was describing it, he said, you know, you can't just have him mimic and repeat everything he sees on TV because then people will instantly think he's just you know, incredulous and like a fool. So he had a hard time or he had a, a tough time. It was a challenge for him to kind of nail the tone of this character. And there's a really cute video of Hal Ashby and Peter Sellers on the set kind of joking around. And one thing I love about this film too is there's an article by the, on the Chicago Reader site where they talk about being there and the, the article title is still funny but newly grim and topical from 2017's <laughs> yeah and I, it only got more depressing over time exactly right? <laughs> it gets fucking bleak the more we dig into this american hellscape but i i also think that what i love about this film is things like that where it's it's something that's you can always find a point of relevance in it because it really discusses you know you're really looking at like with the, this, there's this essay on the Criterion um, collection where they say that the movie is a satire of modern media consumption and American politics. And I agree with that. I think that it's, you know, you can always find a point of entry through this character who's kind of, you know, he's kind of a cipher. So that to me is very interesting. And I also mm-hmm. think it's interesting that without this movie, you don't get movies like Forrest Gump and you don't get movies like Idiocracy. Uh, there's like no... You don't get films where someone is willing to explore the the art of ignorance without this yeah. movie. So good point. I love it. Yeah. I fucking love this movie. I think that it's funny. It's weirdly funny, and it's also incredibly deft at explaining what it means to kind of be in America and be out of place in America and just have people project onto you. So yeah. again, Chance is this guy who. Again, very intellectually stunted, and but he he works in this like grand house, and so when we first meet him, he's pretty silent. Um, like he's kind of putzing around the house and he's cleaning, he's dusting an old car, which I think is hilarious. And most <laughs> importantly, he's watching TV. There's a television in every single room. There's a television in the attic. There's a television on the dining room table. He watches TV all day long, even though his main role is to be a gardener. So he is the gardener right. for this estate. And he's very quiet. He he kind of mimics not just the the voices, but the motions of what he sees on TV. And so throughout the film, he kind of maintains that where he says almost nothing, but his conversational partners and the people around him just project onto him in that silence. Like they fill the silence with their own thoughts and feelings. And it's very interesting to watch that happen. Um because I do think that happens in real life on a small scale every day, but and, and in a large scale in insane ways. But by the end of the movie, we're kind of left with this like philosophical 
question about Chance, which is like, you know, is he really who people think he is? Like, what's going on with this guy? Is he actually magical? Is he actually, you know, like, it's just, it leaves us in, it leaves me in an interesting philosophical place whenever I see this, this film. So he works at this estate, essentially, with this woman named Louise, this um, Black woman who kind of helps take care of the two of them are kind of helping take care of everything in the house. And one morning she comes downstairs and she's like, um, so our employer is dead. <laughs> and um, I just put a blanket over his face. They're going to come get him. And then she just fucking leaves. And we come back to Louise later in the film. But I love the fact that she has worked with and you do find out that she basically raised Chance from the time he was a kid. We never find out about his parentage or his origin. Yeah. Which is also very interesting to me because he's the main character of this film and we don't know much about him at all. Yeah. 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 My bi- That was always my big question was I was like, who, who, where did he come from? He claims that he's never been in a car. He's never left the house. He doesn't know what doctors are, like has never been to the doctor. And I'm like, like, I was like expecting it to be a kind of thing where I was like, is he actually the son of this older guy? But then they don't talk about that at all. So yeah, very, very mysterious yeah. about murky, his background. Yeah. Murky origins. And it, to me, I can't, I keep thinking every time I watch it, I think like he was probably the product of two other people working in the house, having a child. But the decision to like never let him outside is never explained or explored. And it doesn't need to be weirdly for the movie to make sense. But it's just again, like this other interesting layer and like who has a kid and decides they're never allowed outside unless they're like some kind of weird secret. So that's, he could be the, you know, Mr. Jennings kid, or he could be, you know, some child born out of a very strange situation where they were just like, nobody can know you're alive to the point where like he does not have a social security number he doesn't have he does not have a background at all he's never been to the right. doctor he's never learned to read and write um he doesn't he doesn't have anything that shows his address like it's yeah. intense but i kind of like that in any other film i feel like that would be the point of the film is to figure out who he is but in this film exactly. it's like no he's just here's this guy we've dropped him into your life and good luck <laughs> yeah well no no absolutely cuz in order for the movie to work he truly has to be a nothing character, right? Like Exactly. He he has to be like an avatar for everybody else around him. So you're right. I mean, I think my just genuine want to know about that like made me be like, "What how did this happen? How is he this?" But then it would have I think it wouldn't have made the movie as good if they had explained it, right? Completely. Completely. Oh, yeah, because it would have been an overload of information. And then you wouldn't have been able to focus on everyone around him reacting to Chance. It would have been all about Chance, so. Right. You would just spend the entire movie sort of like, you know, pathologizing him and not pay attention to anything else. Completely. Completely. So it's kind of funny when Louise is like, goodbye, uh, because then there's these (laughs) attorneys and she's like constantly, she's like, I'll feed you breakfast. Like she takes care of this adult man and then she just leaves. And I have a theory about that that we'll explore later. But after she leaves, these estate attorneys show up essentially and they're really surprised to find him there and they have no idea who he is and he can't tell them really much about himself. So they're like, Mm -hmm. um... Cool, you have no claim to the house. We don't know who you are. You have 24 hours to get the fuck out of here. Right. And this is the point in the film where I had mentioned earlier where something happens that made me think, holy shit, this is what movies can do. Because he packs and leaves and he's he's 
I think he's kind of instantly you watch as you as he walks through the movie, you realize that people treat him with a certain deference because even though he doesn't say much and he's not overly intelligent, he wears all of his employer's old clothes. So he has these like mm-hmm. finely tailored suits and like nice hats and like he a nice like crocodile skin suitcase or like shit like that. So he looks the part of someone who should be treated with respect and deference. So that's how people treat him, which is fascinating to me. So mm-hmm. he leaves this fucking what you think is like a country estate. And as he walks out the front door, you realize he's in the middle of a city. He is in Washington, D.C., and it's like a bombed out part of the city. Like he's not in a, it might have been a nice neighborhood at one point, but at this point in the 70s, it was bombed out. Yeah. And there's my favorite graffiti that I've ever seen. I wish to fucking God I could put this on a T-shirt. There's this graffiti on a wall as he's walking through the neighborhood that says, America ain't shit because the white man's got a God complex. Mm-hmm. And you realize also that as he's walking through this neighborhood, not only is he not in a country estate, not only is he in the middle of a city, not only is the neighborhood bombed out, this is a predominantly black neighborhood. <laughs> yep. So because he's used to Louise taking care of him, he asks the first black woman he sees to make him lunch. He's like, I'm hungry. Could you make me? <laughs> and she could not run away fast enough. It is so fucking funny. Yeah. Oh, shit. But again, to me, that's an interest. To me, that's an interesting scene. And this whole scene of him walking out into the world is interesting because not only does that flip the script on you, the viewer, like, oh, I thought he was living this quiet, sheltered life somewhere that was also quiet and sheltered, but he's in the middle of the city. But it makes commentaries on race without hitting it over the head. So he's he doesn't fear black people. He doesn't fear people that to him look like Louise. And he doesn't fear being in a neighborhood that is like nothing he's ever seen before except on television because this to him feels like a natural extension of his life. So it's fascinating. And he also, we realize at this point when he's like kind of talking to this gang of kids that he's taken the TV remote with him and put it in his pocket. And it's such a sweet and tender move, but it's also, you know, you're kind of realizing this is like how he understands the world. It might not be like how he communicates with the world because he's never done that, but he understands the world through television. So when he encounters situations that are threatening to him, he just wants to turn it off. Such an interesting and and tender move. Mm -hmm. And then he meets, he meets um, our Shirley MacLaine character. Shirley MacLaine plays Eve Rand um, because her driver backs into him basically while he's watching TV in some store windows and mm-hmm. she just says, like, ah, get in the car. She takes him home to kind of, like, avoid any problems. Like, there's a point where she's sitting in the car and she's like, yeah, this was really nobody's fault. And I'm like, that is such rich lady shit. Where she's like, yeah. I definitely backed into you. Your leg hurts. No one's at fault. It's fine. And, and then also, it's that kind of thing, too, where she's like, oh, let's take you to the hospital. Actually, let's just take you to yeah. our house because we have doctors there. Yeah. And you're like, What? Like, who's rich enough to have, like, their own hospital at their house? Oh, essentially. Yeah, essentially. Because they're in the car. And the car scene is hilarious to me also because it's his first time drinking alcohol. And he starts choking. And as he's choking, she asks his name. And then she misinterprets his name as Chauncey Gardner when he says, I'm Chance the Gardner. So throughout the movie, he's known as Chauncey. Um, And also, she has a television in her car. Of of course she does, because she's rich. And the car on the TV, they're playing that song Basketball Jones by Cheech and Chong. 
<laughs> and it's like this yeah. animated Cheech and Chon song, which if you have not heard the song, it's fucking incredible. I know it's on the Space Jam soundtrack. Go find the original. And yeah. my favorite line from that song, maybe we can drop it in, is at some point he goes, watch me hookshot with my eyebrows. <laughs> watch me hookshot with my eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you, okay, I don't know this, but I don't know. Maybe this is common knowledge. Is that where Chance the Rapper got his name from? That can't be. Right? I don't think so. Really? Chance the Gardener, so. Chance the Rapper? I, I would, if that is the case, I will be a new fan. I was going to say, do we need to start listening to all of his music now? Is that verified? I think he's too verified? young, think oh, he's yeah, too young see, to have that reference. Okay. But I've been mistaken like, before. I know. I was like, is he the coolest dude ever to have taken his rapper name from being there? Are we that cool? If he didn't, we will. <laughs> Change the Wikipedia, Casey. Absolutely. I will I will become Chance the Gardener, the rapper, just to use that. <laughs> but yeah, oh, this shit. is where we learn that like Eve is fucking rich and her husband is really sick to the point where, like Millie said, they have doctors on the premises and like this sterile hospital room built into the mansion. And her Eve's husband is played by Melvin Douglas. He plays Benjamin Rand, and he not only won an, an Oscar, he, he won a supporting actor Oscar for this film and a bunch of other awards for this film for acting, yeah. like Golden Globes, and he just won Best Supporting Actor for a bunch of bunch of stuff. I think my favorite fact about Melvin Douglas, who's like an old time actor, like he was kind of like this suave dude and like kind of the cool guy in in movies with like Greta Garbo and stuff. Um, he was the grandpa on HUD. He was the grandpa on HUD, which we've talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. And he is also Ileana Douglas's grandfather. Yep. I love that factoid. I just love, sure I love a is. dynasty. I love a dynasty of rat actors. We love a dynasty. Well, I, what I love too about, again, these turns in this film. So he goes home with Eve and like meets her doctor and the doctor thinks he should stay there for a few few days you know, to kind of heal and make sure that there's nothing really wrong with him. The doctor is also hilarious. He's like, oh, there could be some internal hemorrhaging, but it's not that big a deal. And I'm like, this is wild. I love this shit. Just no, so funny. Don't. But he, so he stays there and it's kind of, again, funny to me that he spends one day out in the world just kind of wandering around and then he lucks into this situation where yet again, he's staying in the home of another rich person. And from this point on in the film, you realize that because of his proximity to the Rands um, and how quickly they kind of take to him, especially um, Benjamin, he gets to meet a lot of incredibly powerful people, including the president, who he's only seen on television, of course. And the president is played by um, Jack Warden. Again, fantastic actor. You'll know him if you see him. Look him up. Speaking of 12 Angry Men. Yep. I mean, Mm. this could have been the theme. (laughs) Could have been. Could have been. Draw a line from 12 Angry Men. But we went with Lenny Kravitz's dick popping out. (laughs) That's That's who we are. That's who we are. (laughs) And what's also fascinating about this, you know, again, the movie from this point forward is that everyone is falling in love with Chance. And I mean, like politically, romantically, including Eve. She's like, my husband's on his deathbed, but he like he's like kind of sanctioning our our relationship because he likes you so much. Everyone is falling in love with this dude because when he sits down at a table, for example, with the, you know, Russian emigre or whatever, he's Mm He doesn't say a thing. He doesn't speak Russian. But this guy is like, oh, you speak Russian. Great. Because he laughs. It kind of mimics laughing at the same time that this guy laughs. 
And it's just, again, fascinating. All these rumors start swirling. Like, I hear he speaks eight languages, and I hear he's a, a lawyer and a doctor. Like, all these rumors swirl about him, and he has said nothing, nothing. And right. his kind of claim to fame at this point is that once he meets the president because of Benjamin, because Benjamin's like an advisor, he only speaks in gardening metaphors. And mm. they take that to mean that he's very smart about economic issues. It's just so cool to watch. Like he's just speaking yeah. what he knows, which is like you have to tend to the tree. And sometimes there are good seasons and sometimes there are bad seasons. And they project that onto him and run with it. And it's I mean, you can see why that article in the Chicago Reader about how prophetic and grim this movie is, you know, in modern in a modern sense could be. So I right. love it. And he's on television and he's just getting more and more fame as the days go on. And Louise does see him on TV. And she is sitting, it looks like she's in like the lobby of her apartment building with a whole bunch of people. And she is fucking shocked. So she, <laughs> Louise says, she's like, he never learned to read or write. And she, quote, says, he was shortchanged by the Lord and dumb as a jackass. <laughs> she is like apoplectic. And she's like, and then she also says, it is for sure a white man's world. All you got to be is white in America to get whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And she's looking at this guy that she's raised from the time he was a kid who doesn't know shit from Shinola. And he is now on TV talking to the president within a matter of days of being kicked out into the world, a world that he's never engaged with. Right. Um, so Louise, to me, is a pivotal character because she knows all of this, but she doesn't say shit to anybody. She's just like, right. yep, that's how the world works, and there's nothing we can fucking do about it. These right. idiots will get in there and not know what the fuck they're talking about, and everyone will venerate them, and that is the world we live in. Yeah. No, that's the—that, I feel like, is such a, a, a Hal Ashby kind of thing where he's able to make, like, these very, you know, deep— political statements about the world, but mm -hmm. wrap it up into this kind of, it's almost kind of like a fairy tale, uh, you know, kind of scenario, yeah. right? Which I love that. I love that there's that, like, undercurrent of, like, actual topics going on in this film, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it carries the whole film forward, and it has to because yeah. of where he is. You know, he's in Washington, D.C., he's engaging with politics, whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Um, so I love that. And then, you know, the movie, I'm not going to spoil the ending because I never do, but like the movie carries on in that the estate lawyer also sees him on TV. And now everyone in Ch Chance's orbit is trying to figure out, like including the president and the press, they're trying to figure out who he is and why he has no background. So I love, I just, I love this movie. I think it is, again, weirdly prophetic and just has such moments of such delicate hilarity and I notice new things that are funny every time I watch it. Yeah, so that is something. The There was this scene in the film that I must have completely forgot about. Like, I probably haven't seen this movie since the early 2000s, where Shirley MacLaine essentially masturbates <laughs> in front of, Chance the Gardener, because that's like this whole thing that happens in the film is that he also doesn't know romance. He doesn't exactly. know kind of sexual feelings. And the only way he even can reciprocate in moments is 
when he's watching television, right? He's truly right. only informed by TV. And I think there was this like running joke in the film that he likes to watch, right? Because he likes to watch TV and then everybody takes that to be this like, oh, he's like this like weird pervy guy that likes oh, to God. watch people. And then that gets taken to that level in one scene. And I was fucking shocked. Like I was like, Queen Shirley down here on the oh, bearskin rug. And I was like, what in the fuck is going on? Not just a bearskin rug. There are two bearskin rugs in that room that still have the heads attached. It's like that rich people <laughs> shit where they're like, we still got the skull and the teeth on this shit. Yeah, we need those heads to prove that we're rich. <laughs> and I love Preserve the teeth. The, the, <laughs> preserve the teeth. We might need to put them in our own head one day, George Washington style. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I mean, they don't show it, obviously. It's not like right. a porn, obviously. But I was like, wow. And then it's like Chance just kind of sitting on the bed being like, I'm watching TV. I don't even know what the fuck is going on down there. And right before it happens, the reason she even engages with it is that he is watching a, a love scene on TV where people are kissing and he copies that and just starts kissing yeah. her and then is like, I like to watch. And she's like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. Yeah. Let's, let's, just, I, let me get to... Get to work down here. And he just goes back to watching TV and then he switches over to like someone doing calisthenics and he's like, while she's down there doing her thing, he's on the bed trying to do like handstands. It's so fucking funny and weird. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about the fact that then he switches to like a yoga channel and then he's doing yoga on the bed. And I was like, how how soon after did she do terms of endearment? I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? (laughs) How soon after? (laughs) I was like, damn, dude. Like Shirley McCain Shirley McLean is a G. She's like, I will yeah, do I will commit to this fucking G. role. <laughs> I don't know why um, that shocked the fuck out of me though, but anyway. Because um, it's Shirley McLean and you're not used to seeing that side of her. Yeah, I, I definitely did wasn't prepared. But, but this, I, this movie is great. I just love it. Love I it. think more people should see it. I don't want it to be forgotten. I know it's, you know, it's a, it's not like it's purely it's not like an underground film. Like it's on AFI lists and lists all the time. Right. But I just think it is not enough people have seen it and I want more people to see it. I agree. And I feel like uh, maybe part of that is because it's like a late period Peter Sellers movie. So mm. it feels like kind of I don't know, maybe less talked about in that regard. But also, I think within the Hal Ashby filmography, I mean, everybody loves Harold and Maude so much that it's like when you... And maybe that's the problem, I think, with both of our directors this week, is like when you have like a smash, cult, huge game-changer film, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that kind of puts some of the other work that you've done kind of on a back burner... Which is unfair because, you know, like, there are so many good movies that directors can make that aren't the big one they did. Right. Well, and it's like you were saying about, you know, earlier at the top of the episode where, you know, with Ari Aster, it's like, you know, directors come up with their own language. And if you watch all of their films, you get to see how that plays out and you get to develop your own language for how to, you know, engage with the film itself. So... I think it's important, even if you don't love every movie that they make, like, if you like a director, you should see... All other films, see as much as possible. Well, and to be honest with you, there are through lines between Harold and Maude and being there to me. Like, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, sort of similar character affects between mm-hmm. Harold and Chance. So it's that thing where, yeah, I mean, obviously it's same director has made both films. But yeah, I agree with you. I feel like 
This is, it doesn't seem as talked about, despite the fact that maybe Chance the Rapper took his name from the film. We don't know. I can't believe you're starting that rumor. I'm starting it. (laughs) But also, like, yeah, I just feel like it's really charming and poignant. Like, it's definitely aged well. Yes. You know? And, um, yeah, I'm glad that I got to see it again. Yay! Well, I'm glad that I got to see your film for, like, the second time this year. Exactly, exactly. You know what else I love about our two movies, another connection point, maybe, is that they both have, like, codas during the credits. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Yeah. And in mine, yeah. it's, like, very bloopery. Yeah. Um, but I like that you get to kind of see the spirit of the actors come out in those those codas. Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually, I think mine has a blooper, Yeah, technically a blooper, even though apparently... It was harrowing for Michelle Pfeiffer. She almost, like, cracked her neck or something. And she had to be saved by Matthew Modine, which we'll talk about. For sure. But um, anyway, so my movie for the theme, remember when Lenny Kravitz's dick popped out? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a movie from 1988. It was uh, written by Barry... Strugitz and Mark R. Burns, directed by Jonathan Demi, and it's called Married to the Mod. And how am I supposed to get ahead in the family? Huh? In the same way you always have. Lie, cheat, steal. I know some of you right off the bat are going to be like, this is not a forgotten classic since it's now on a beautifully restored Blu-ray disc with commentary featuring Daniel Henderson and Milita Cherico from the I Saw What You Did podcast. Very true, very true. Yeah. First of all, have we ever done a Jonathan Demi movie? Is this our first one? No, I think this is our first one. Although, according to your calculations, you went, you dropped into the slack some super nerd calculations this week. We have mentioned or covered a Matthew Modine film five times. He is our most mentioned actor. He is. I love how you shamed me immediately. <laughs> I was like, yo, I pulled up some like Nate Silver 538 statistics about the podcast. And guess what? We've talked about Matthew Modine five times. And you're like, way to go, Urkel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It just made me laugh so hard that you're like, I've got the stats on us. <laughs> <laughs> I had to know. I had to know. I didn't want to be throwing out fake stats all willy-nilly. It's sh- It's wild, but not surprising to me that he's our most mentioned actor. Well, yeah, considering that we've talked about, like, Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks, like, the idea that you and I would bring up Matthew Modine the most, I think, says a lot about... Us. Above Robert um, Redford. <laughs> Above Elizabeth <laughs> Taylor. We only mentioned Elizabeth Taylor covered her movies three times. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I I love that for us, not gonna lie. <laughs> um so I remember when this movie came out as a kid. Did you yes, remember? For sure. Yeah. I actually didn't know at that time, obviously I didn't know anything about Jonathan Demi. Yep. But you know, I thought it was being sold at the time to me as, like, a goofy kind of studio comedy, right? Exactly. But I actually think, listen, like, when people start talking about famous directors' filmographies and everybody gets real crazy, so I want to say, this is my opinion, okay? It is my opinion that Married to the Mob is not only 
an underrated 80s comedy. But I also think that it's more charming than something wild. Ooh, I like it. I, I can get okay. there with you. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I like I went speaking of letterbox, I went on record last year when we were talking about Married to the Mob for the commentary and I hadn't seen it in a while. And I was like, I gotta say, this might be more charming than something wild, which, you know, as you know, is a beloved Jonathan Demi movie. It's part mm-hmm. of the Criterion Collection. It's like the title that everybody loves to talk about besides Silence of the Lambs. But you know what I mean? In that way, in that like kind of 80s Jonathan Demi romance comedy kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, guess what, folks? I think Married to the Mob is better. And I got like two texts from people that I knew. Texts, like not comments on Letterboxd, but people who reached me directly and was like, did I just read that you think Married to the Mob? I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they You're were like, like this is holy <laughs> shit. That's a take. That's a take. But I can understand that because I think something something wild is charming. Yes. But in some ways, it's like the kind of arty, inaccessible version of this film. Right. Because it's the same concept. These two movies have the same concept. It's basically a straight-laced guy falls for like a much more interesting woman. Mm-hmm. And that woman is in turn being chased by like a scary, murderous, criminal type guy. Right. Right? That's both these movies to a T. And that's my one sentence synopsis, honestly. Love it. <laughs> Love it. This movie. But <laughs> but I think you're right. I feel like something wild is a little darker. There's obviously that kind of like road trip aspect of it that that is different from Marriage to the Mob. However, I feel like Marriage to the Mob is the it's goofier, but it's not like too goofy. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. perfectly goofy. I think because something wild gets a lot of attention, I feel like people forget that Married to the Mob was the Jonathan Demi movie. And then I just feel like, well, you know, but I also feel like it's, for me, it's better. It's more screwball comedy farce. Mm -hmm. I feel like it, what it does that I think is perfect. And like, I have to say, this movie is focused on like late 80s mafia Italians from the Northeast. Okay. But I want to think about this in terms of it being in, like, a pre-Sopranos, pre-Jersey Shore world, mm-hmm. right? At this time, we knew about the Godfather movies, right? But we weren't kind of, like, super tuned in to, like, the Real Housewives of New Jersey-ish kind of style and musings of, like, this world. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and pop culturally, for sure, we were not willing yeah. to make fun of that genre yeah. or that subsect. Right. It was all so, presented very seriously as if like you do not fuck with yeah. this sector. Right. But it's like, so I think in the time it's fresh. Like it's fresh to be like kind of like ripping off like style cues from like these mafia Italians, right? Um, and to make it a comedy. It was very, very cute to me. And and I think that's kind of what I love about it because it's super stylish. It really, like, hams up that aspect of, like, the tackiness of people and um, the tackiness of, like, mafia folks, which I feel like as a half-Italian person, I can speak to without getting killed. I don't want to get murked, okay? But I'm just saying, I, I, I really love this film, and I feel like 
it, the double team of Michelle Pfeiffer and Matthew Modine, who, by the way, I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer is criminally underrated as a, c- a comic actor. Absolutely. I think, obviously, we know, we know this from Grease 2 and um, in this movie. She's so funny and charming. And at the same time, I think sh- her character grounds the film because it could be a runaway train of, like, style and, you know, kind of, like, sight gags and whatnot. But mm-hmm. she kind of gives it a little bit of a center because effectively the movie is about her character being married into this, like, mafia group, and then she wants out. She wants to be her own woman. She wants to, like, you know, get out of this life and be her own person. And and that is, like, an interesting concept. And I feel like that might have been completely thrown out if she wasn't as good of an actress. Do you know what I mean? Completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. I think that she, um, and she plays it so, like, she doesn't play it over the top with this character, so it's even funnier to watch her try to be serious in this kind of insane world. Yes. But she just, she gets it, and she nails the character, it's, the character it's herself, like, she nails that character's personality so right. well that it just... It all fits. Like, her as Angela just fits because she's not doing, like, the heightened comedy version of, like you said, the Jersey Shore kind of, like, you know, she's just doing this very subdued sort of approach to this this wild world. And I think it works yeah. out great. And I, I, would, I would argue that nobody in the film, like, everybody in the film is so good and such a good actor that they're not doing the really over-the-top... I mean, as much as you think, oh, they might be because they're wearing, like, shoulder pads and they've got, like, gold jewelry dripping off them. Like, they're still actually not buffoons. Right. Of, of You know what I mean? It's still kind of centered in, like, real emotions. Even Mercedes Rule, which we will get to, uh. of course, in just a second. So I, I we obviously did the commentary track for this Blu-ray, the Fun City Editions Blu-ray. So I don't want to try to like duplicate that necessarily. I just figured we can just kind of chat about the film. If you haven't seen it, uh, basically Michelle Pfeiffer plays this woman named Angela. She's married to this guy named Frank, who is played by Alec Baldwin. Black-haired and black brief Alec Baldwin, by the way. Hairy chest. Whose nickname is Cucumber in this film. I know. I was like, what? How did that come about? I don't want to ask. But he's kind of like a hitman henchman for this mob boss named Tony the Tiger Russo. And he is played by Dean Stockwell, R.I.P. King. Love Dean Stockwell. They also have a young son who is already following in his father's footsteps. And I have to mention this. It's a very, very... It's it's at the beginning of the film. You might it's kind of like a throwaway scene, maybe, but for me, it's hilarious because basically his son is hosting these like three card Monty games in the backyard with like the neighborhood kids. Yeah, he's he's a little kid. This is not like an adult son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like an elementary school kid. And and this part, I when I saw it this time, this made me scream because I for some reason I've never noticed this in the multiple times I've watched this movie. At one point. One of the kids in the neighborhood pulls out like a $10 bill <laughs> and puts it on the table. And I'm like, 10 
dollars in the late 80s to like an elementary school kid was like unheard of. It was like a hundred bucks. A hundred bucks to you. Oh my God. I was like, these kids got $10 to gamble? Shit. Oh God, but that also lets you know like these are people with money and they'll give that money to their fucking kids because they have so much of it that they don't care. Yeah. I... I had to say, like, my my nephew, Henry, just lost. He's getting, he's losing his baby teeth, you know, and the tooth fairy's coming around Aww. a lot. He told me the other day that the tooth fairy gave him $10 for, for one of tooth? his teeth. For a and I was tooth. like, who the fuck is this tooth fairy? I was like, you know, I got like a quarter per tooth. Oh, change. <laughs> change specifically. If it was a big tooth or it was hard to get out, a dollar. <laughs> I know. I pulled the side of my sister and I was like, the tooth fairy is giving out $10 bills. He got a tenner. That doesn't even adjust for inflation. (laughs) I was fucking shocked. Okay. So um, here's the thing. So uh, Angela's got this family, you know, obviously she's feeling like this is too much. Like she doesn't want to be part of this life anymore. They've got like hot electronics all over the house. You know, it's just real real bad. And then, you know, Frank pretty much kills somebody within the first like five minutes of the movie. So she's kind of like, okay, my son's playing three-card Monty. He's like finding revolvers around the house. Like, it's time to leave, right? So the thing about it, though, is that she's so embedded in this world. And so she's she's got this friend group of the other mafia guys' wives, right? And it's this collection of ladies who, again, are, are dripping, who just have gold all over, shoulder pads, like high, hair as high as the heavens. And it's all kind of like the leader of this like gang of wives is Connie, who is Tony's wife. And she's played by Mercedes Rule. She absolutely steals the show, period. Like, I mean, as much as everybody's really great in this movie, it's all about Mercedes Rule in this movie. She is not taking any scene lightly. (laughs) There are intense looks. There are intense hand motions. She is saying, she's unhinged in this film and in, in the best possible way. In the best possible way ever. Absolute gem. And I, you know, like she really, like, again, her character is supposed to be like super over the top, right? Like, mm-hmm. even in this world, she's over the top. But I actually think she's still believable. Right. She's not an absolute cartoon character. She's still a believable woman who is married to this mob boss who might be cheating on her and she wants to keep her man at all costs. And Tony, she's the only person that Tony is actually terrified of. Like, he doesn't care about any murderous bad guy that he has to deal with, any cop, any agent. He's like, my wife is the scariest person (laughs) of all time. And I cannot cross her at all. Oh, God, it's so great. And she is just like, and again, she's over the top and she's like, I will protect my lifestyle, my family at all costs. Um, but she's also like this woman who's losing it. And it's just so funny to see how her friends and the people around her have to treat her like she's completely sane and legit. Oh, yeah. When they're like, oh, my God, she's, but she's. The boss's wife is the person who's the boss of the wives, so. Exactly. And, you know, Angela is feeling, I mean, she's feeling like the thumb screws are being turned because of this. Like, she's like, I'm never going to be able to get out of this life because all these people care too much. And it's too, 
you know, there's too much of a like a loyalty pact going on. There's mm-hmm. a moment too where like, because Connie's convinced that she basically tells Angela like everybody wants to sleep with Tony. Who doesn't want to sleep with the boss? You know, even though it's like everyone's got husbands who are younger or more attractive, but everybody <laughs> wants to fuck Tony still. But there's a moment where she she actually confronts Angela in the grocery store with all of her wives, and then she rips a carton of eggs in half. <laughs> And I'm like, A, that's impressive. <laughs> B, it seems so satisfying. Oh Would you want to rip a carton of eggs in half? Oh, for sure. Especially as an intimidation move, because it's so unhinged. You're like, what the fuck is coming next? I don't know. I don't know. She just ripped a carton of eggs in half. It seems very satisfying. Okay, here's the plan. Do you have a birthday coming up, right? Do you have a birthday coming up or something? I do, next week. Okay, I think as a birthday present, alongside the other stuff that I got you, but I want to, I want us to get on a Zoom and then rip a carton of eggs in half. And I know they're expensive right now, but maybe we can find like the shitty ones, like the shitty oh, eggs that no one cares about, and then we can both rip them in half. Just I'll to find... see what it would feel like. I want to see what it feels like. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. I will. That will be the greatest gift of all. Okay, just we'll, see if I can we'll even make... do it. Do I have enough strength for it? See, that's what I was thinking, too. I was like, okay, so um, they seem to have been... I was like, what packaging is it in? Like, she, it seemed very easy. And I was probably like movie magic, but I, I also thought maybe we should try to do it. Oh, that'd be a great challenge. I'm down. Okay, let's just see what it feels like. Okay, put a pin in that. So here's the thing about Tony, though. Tony is cheating on Connie, obviously. <laughs> And so, and he's been, like, sleeping with this woman who works at this nightclub that he frequents, which is the greatest nightclub of all time. It's, like, medieval times meets, like, the Dresden in L.A. or something. It's, like, very, very... And this is, like, the thing I love about the movie. It's just, like, these locations. I'm, like... Completely. What the fuck are all these, like, themed hotels and, and nightclubs? So basically, he's banging this waitress who is played by Nancy Travis. And essentially, they they have a rendezvous with the Fantasia Hotel, which is literally like the Madonna Inn. It's a fucking <laughs> masterpiece. <laughs> and as it turns out, Frank, Angela's husband, is also sleeping with the Nancy Travis character, okay? This gets found out by Tony pretty much immediately, same night. And then he shoots Frank and kills him and kills Nancy Travis because he's completely distraught that his mistress is also seeing another person. And somebody in his crew. And somebody in his crew. So he kills Frank. So now that makes Angela a widow. So here's the thing. This is happening all the same time as these two FBI agents are trying to bust this whole criminal operation that Tony the Tiger runs, okay? And these two agents are played by Oliver Platt and Matthew Modine. Five-time king, Matthew Modine. (laughs) And here's the thing about these two. They're obviously the fuzz, but they're also, like, wacky and weird in their own way. They're such weirdos. They're such weirdos. Just the whole, like, you get to see where Mike Downey, the Matthew Modine character, like, where he lives and how he lives at one point. And you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Much Okay, much like his character in Birdie, which we just talked about, he wakes up in his weird bed that is customized for his pets. <laughs> I love it. So 
Matthew Modine in two movies where he has this weird bed that is cut like bespoke bed that's made for the animals in his house. And is made for his whole apartment is is geared around him being able to get dressed and get out as quick as possible. Yes, because he slides himself into his own pants <laughs> via via some contraption, like it's like a Looney Tunes character, or like Pee Wee's Big Adventure. You know, oh god, he's just such a weirdo. I fucking love it, dude. Like, there's so okay. There's so many sight gags in this movie that I absolutely fucking love. That's one of them. Also, anytime Matthew Modine and Oliver Platt are like tailing Angela and then they're like embedded in the place where she's at, <laughs> like in the scene where Connie rips the eggs in half, like so they're confronting her at the grocery store and then it cuts to Matthew Modine and Oliver Platt, like they're working the meat counter. <laughs> And, like, taking pictures while, like, slicing hams for people. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so well. Like, anything where it's just, like, the absurdity of the lengths they're willing to go to to get get their guy is hilarious to me. The best one, though, to me is, like, (laughs) when Matthew Modine is tailing her on the street and then it cuts to him, like, singing with the acapella group. That is also my favorite. 100%. <laughs> Holy shit. I laugh so hard when that happens. Oh my God, it's so fucking funny. The seamless transition to that is fucking beautiful. It's so yeah, funny. Oh. I mean, and that, that is this movie in a nutshell. Just like that <laughs> weird shit. There's also just kind of like, you know, visual sight gags in the background where it's like, you know, all of the like hot, boxes of electronics that are in that living room. And then there's also this, like, scene where Tony... Because now that Angela's single, you know, Tony's, like, making his move on her. And then he buys her, like, a brand new kitchen, and there's, like, this huge gold lame bow on this refrigerator. Like, <laughs> they just... They just took out the refrigerator and then put this, like, refrigerator, wrapped it up in a present, and oh, then just, like, God. installed it. Oh God, it fucking is so it is funny. Wild. But I also, I and I also love that. Like, this is a film about like she's willing to give up and wanting to give up this lifestyle and moves yep. into like the like the village. Like she moves into like this kind of rundown apartment and not a great neighborhood in the city. Like she gives up all the suburban creature comforts that she could have still had, right? In order to be free and teach her kid like a different way to live. So you see her like her struggle feels realistic in that way where she's like i am not moving from this big suburban house into a luxury apartment on park avenue she's like i'm out like i'm gonna teach myself how to do something so that i don't have to go back to this life and she ends up working for this hairdresser the hairdresser is fucking hilarious but she just kind of throws herself into something so completely new and it baffles everyone no one can understand like you know for for connie for the mercedes rule character for her, it just confirms even more that she's having an affair with Tony. Yeah. She's like, why would you have this apartment? Like, why would you be so far away? Like, you need a love nest to go to. It's just, yeah, it's really great to see her try to get extricate herself from this lifestyle. Right. And that's, I think, the thing that maybe a movie that had, that wasn't as, I mean, I'm just going to say it's the credit to, like, Jonathan Demme, to be honest. Because it's mm-hmm. like, he's always been interested in, like, dynamic women, in his films, right? And 
he's able to balance the farce screwball aspects of this movie with also this story about a woman who, like you said, is just trying to get her, gain her independence. And it like, you know, she basically donates all of that stuff that she's getting from Tony the refrigerator uh, and all that stuff to Goodwill. And she's like, I'm just going to start completely over. I don't want any of uh, any of this you know, ties to this group. And I also don't want men to take care of me. I don't want right. their money, you know, which I think is fascinating. You know, she gets a job. Like, she wants a job. She's basically applying at, like, chicken restaurants and, like, you know, she wants to be her own woman. And I feel like that is a Jonathan Demi thing. And just completely what I love about him so much, right? Agree. Agree. And the, so I think what invariably happens, I think we all know how this sh- shakes loose, is that, you know, Downey, the agent Downey, who is the Matthew Modine character, is tailing this woman and he's fascinated by her and starts kind of falling for her, which I think is also a Jonathan Demi thing. Again, alongside something wild, it's like these two stories of these like really straight laced, kind of boring suit guys, you know, being charmed by a woman who's much more interesting, <laughs> got a lot of style, you know, like they're like, fascinated by this this freewheeling independent woman which right. i love i think we know why why would we love that take a guess right i mean her her own son is like what the fuck's going on <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. like why did you move me to this dumpy life but you know every other everyone else in her orbit is like enchanted yeah and then from that point on, it's basically like Downey kind of trying to balance the investigation with the fact that he's falling for the subject, okay? Then, of course, you've got Tony, who's like taking no for an answer, wanting to basically boo up Angela, and she's just like not responding, and he gets pissed. And then there's it, there's like a whole sequence towards the end where they actually go to Miami. That whole, oh my God, that hotel that they're in in Miami is fucking incredible. Style-wise, this movie is so great. Again, so many good outfits, so many good uh, locations, you know, the sight gags, the world that takes place in. There's so many good cameos in this movie. I don't know if I mentioned this, but Joan Cusack is one of Connie's wives, Mm -hmm. you know, part of that whole crew. You've got David Johansson from the New York Dolls slash Buster Poindexter. He's like a priest at Frank's funeral. The grandpa from the Munsters at one point shows up as one of Tony's uncles or something. You've got Jonathan Demi staple Charles Napier. He plays a stylist at a hair salon. Always love when Charles Napier shows up in a Jonathan Demi movie. Same with Olan Jones, who's yep. a great character actress that you would absolutely recognize if you saw her, if you don't know her name by name. Yeah. And then Danielle mentioned Sister Carol East. She plays the stylist at the salon where Angela gets a job in. She was in Something Wild as well. You've got Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac shows up randomly. He's like a dressed as a clown and he's a hitman at a drive-thru. I mean, it's fucking great. And this is pre-Wicked Games, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe so. Wait, in 88? When did Wicked Game come out? Like 90? I feel like it came out in the 90s. Yeah, I want to say this Because was... he was trying to be a, a an actor. 89, babe, 89. Uh-huh. One year before. Yeah, uh-huh. So God, that scene at the drive-thru restaurant is so funny. You know who else is incredible is Paul Lazar, who's plays one of 
yeah, I guess maybe like one of Tony's right hand men. He's so good. Like just like seeing him in a movie makes me happy. And I honestly, I just, I absolutely adore this fucking movie. I just adore it. It puts me in such a good mood. I feel like, why aren't people doing screen grabs of this movie? Why aren't they dressing like these characters for Halloween? How come, like, people are always putting pictures from something? Like, why are we doing that when we have Married to the Mob in front of our faces? It's so good. It's, it's so, good. so good. It's a, And it's so comfortable. It's, like a, it's a movie that knows what it is. It knows its own identity. It's very comfortable. You're not trying to, you know, follow along in a way that's confusing or doing a lot of guesswork. It's just... It's good from jump and it just knows what it is. Yeah. And I appreciate that as a viewer. Like it gives us everything. It gives us so much comedy, so many heightened moments, but it doesn't do it in a way that you're like, what's happening now? What's going on? I just, I love it. I love it. It's very comfortable and fun movie. Yep. Agreed. And I would ask every hardcore cinephile who stands something wild to look themselves in the mirror and ask is Married to the Mob more charming? Perhaps. Maybe maybe we need to be focusing all of our attention on this film, on this rom-com instead. I don't or, know. You know, both are great, but, you know, just don't forget this one. Yeah. Jonathan yeah, Demi's well, awesome. I'm not saying I don't like something wild. Come on. How, how could I? But I'm just saying, let's balance the scales a little bit. You know yes. what I'm saying? Okay. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't, I watched it, with the DVD that we have, but I could not watch it with our commentary. I just can't hear my own voice that way. <laughs> Absolutely not. I've never listened to our commentary. That's, but you I should. can't do that. Go buy this oh, fucking you guys movie should. and you guys for should sure. listen to it. Yes, you, you, you should for sure. But I will not be listening to us because like you, it's just weird. Just weird. Um, although well, it was enjoyable. So. Yeah. It was enjoyable to watch again. And I think this is a perfect pick for the theme. Just perfect. Yeah, this is a fun one. And not just because we got to talk about Lenny Kronz's deck, but Forgotten Classics is fun. I love it. I love it. Well, if you want to email us, we are at isawwhatyoudidpod at gmail.com. And you can find us on our social media at isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. Also, we have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. And look, bonus episodes are all the time now. Every third Thursday for of the month for the new ones, and then all the time for the other ones. They're popping up in your main feed now. You don't have to pay for them. Go and enjoy what we said two years ago. Oh, my God. So many bonus. Well, um, Danielle, you want to talk about the movies for next week's episode? I sure do. Uh, our films are Fatal Attraction from 1987 and The Great Santini from 1979. If you guess the theme perfectly, I would take you out to dinner. Because it's another Danielle creation, so. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, as always, uh, fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you, Danielle. You are the best. I love it. I had so much fun. Bye. See ya. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle, artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail.
Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.